Thank you for tuning in to the Expository Word Podcast, where we are listening to classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. Throughout these programs, Kimber faithfully follows the text to deliver God's message. Today, Kimber continues teaching through the book of Samuel, and our hope is that you will be challenged and encouraged by listening in. Let's turn now to Kimber. Please take your Bibles and open to 1 Samuel chapter 10. 1 Samuel chapter 10. Would you please follow along as I read in 1 Samuel chapter 10, starting with verse 17. We continue our study in 1 Samuel. We left off last week at verse 16. We have a short section to study this week. 1 Samuel 10, reading with verse 17. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God, who saves you out of all your calamities and distresses. And you have said, no, set a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. When Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin clan by clan, and Matri's clan was chosen. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was chosen. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, Yes, he has hidden himself among the baggage. They ran out and brought him. They ran and brought him out, and he stood taller. He stood among the people. He was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, Long live the king! Samuel explained to the people the regulations of the kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people, each to his own home. Samuel also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some troublemaker said, How can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts, but Saul kept silent. Our Father in heaven, we would just make this short prayer. Speak to us now by your Holy Spirit, through your word, through what you have ordained for this age, the preaching of your word. And we desire, Father, now to be changed and to learn and to grow. In Jesus' name, amen. Bill Ralph Davis writes this, There was a grievous injustice in the Church of Scotland in the late 18th century. The General Assembly, the national body, would impose a minister upon a parish even if the people were opposed to him and even though the presbytery regional body would not approve him. On one such occasion in 1773, the General Assembly ordered a presbytery and all its minister members to be present and to induct Mr. David Thompson as minister of a parish near Stirling. The formal task fell to Robert Finley, Presbytery moderator. However, instead of preaching as was customary, Finley called Mr. Thompson forward and addressed him in a way seldom if ever done in such situations. He told him that they were met by the authority of the General Assembly, which was acting as if they were superior to any parliament. Finley reminded Thompson that he had been opposed by 600 heads of families and all but one elder in the church. He admitted that Thompson had maintained a good character until for the last seven years he had persistently tried to become the pastor at this church. 
And he said to them in front of, in this grand occasion where he was supposed to be uh, uh, set into ministry at this location, he encouraged him to give it up now, to back off, and not to become the pastor. Mr. Thompson, in a low voice, directed Finley to obey the orders of your superiors. Finley then, without any of his usual formulas or posing questions to the candidate, simply concluded by saying, I, as moderator of the Presbytery of Sterling, admit you, Mr. David Thompson, to be minister of the parish of St. Ninnans in the true sense and spirit of the late sentence of the General Assembly, and you are hereby admitted accordingly without praying for the local parish minister or the presbytery. Say, Kim, what, what's the point of all this? What are you trying to tell us? Well, at two graduations and at this initiation assembly, people did what was not really expected. They said things which weren't really appropriate. It was sort of like saying the wrong thing at the right time. The reason I want to tell you that is the passage that we're going to study this morning is about a grand occasion in Israel. Oh, it, it must have been something to have been there. The first ever inauguration of the first ever king of Israel. You know how it is when in January of every fourth year when the new president comes into office, oh, if you, if you get an invitation to go to that, my brother and sister-in-law a few years back got to go to, I forget, Reagan's second or Bush's first, I can't remember which it was, but they got to go, oh, it was exciting, they got to go, and it was, oh, you go to this meeting and this banquet and that place, and it's a big, posh thing, it's really great to be there, oh, it's so exciting, and you hope to get near the president. I'm going to tell you something, this is how it was. Israel was excited. If you can remember, and let me just show you quickly, to help you understand this text, if you can remember that the first seven chapters are about Samuel, but now we're in 10, and 8 through 14, it's about Saul. Now, if you can remember this, that in this continuation about Saul, in chapter 8, there was an assembly in which the people asked for a king. They said, we want to be like the other nations. Give us a king. And Samuel was grieved, and God was grieved. He says, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. And God he gives them a rebuke. You know, you shouldn't have done this. But then there's great mercy, and we have seen in 9 through 10, 16, over the last few weeks, we have seen how... In God's mercy, he still had Saul be found by Samuel and anoint him as king. And we learned many lessons, particularly last week, about encouragement, even though it was by his concession and not by his grace. And now here we are in this next assembly. And look at verse 17 in your Bibles. Look what it says. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah. So here they come. Everyone is gathering to this big assembly. They know what it's about. They know what it's about. Hey, we're going to get a new king. Oh, I'm going to tell you everybody who was anybody was there tickets were selling probably by the scalpers outside to get into the big temple we want to be there we want to see this people were packed out it was sro they were looking in the, the in the windows and all around everybody wanted to be there and i will tell you friends here's what's going on now here's mizpah i want you to see it on the map right there mizpah in the center of israel it's up on a hill great place of the or a lot of major assemblies took place it was a safe place because uh, you couldn't charge them. They were up on this safe hill up in this town. And there he is. They're, they're, they're anticipating now the, 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 the king. But guess what? There's something different this time. It's not just the inauguration of a king for the first time. When they come, it's not just getting the king. Get this, everybody. They're going to find out who the king is. Nobody knows. Can you imagine going to inauguration in Washington in January of the fourth year and not to know who it's going to be? I wonder who it's going to be. Well, Billy Graham's going to tell us. This is sort of what it was like. He's going to tell us. We're going to get there and he's going to tell us who the next president is. Okay? Or the Pope or whoever your allegiances will lie there. Okay? 
Uh, Kim Kaufman, if you like, I'd sort of like you to think that. All right? Now, there you are. And we're going to find out who the first king is. Oh, oh it, what an exciting day. What a grand occasion. All kinds of pomp and ceremony and excitement. Boy, you, you, you can't wait. And then guess what? In fact, let me just break down this passage for you. You can see how it would go. The inauguration day of the first king of Israel. The inauguration message. Look what happens. Here is the message. By the way, before, before you read the message, you, you, I, someday I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it. Someday in my lifetime, this is one of my goals. You're going to come to church, and I'm going to be like Winston Churchill was at that graduation service of one of the great military academies. You remember? He stood up, and everybody was there. It was exciting. And he just said, never, never, never. Nine times. Do you remember that? He said it in nine different tones. And then he just said, give up. And he went and sat down. And now, all, all the graduation messages ever preached, at least we remember that one. We don't remember anything else, you know. You know, be true to your heart, be true to God, be true to your family. You know, no one remembers those things, all right? But they do remember that. Someday you're going to come here to church, and I'm going to have a message like that, okay? <laughs> now, what was the message? What was the message that Samuel had? The inauguration message, I'm going to tell you, I want you to think about it. Everybody wanted to get in. Everybody wanted to be there. Samuel stood up to give the message. Oh, there was an excitement in the air. Are you ready? Here goes the message. Let's look first off at the introduction. You know, by the way, they teach you in speaking and in a homiletics class, you've got to have a good introduction. Well, here's his introduction. He stands up and he says this. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. That's his intro. <laughs> now, you have to admit, it's pretty simple, but it's pretty dramatic. God is talking. Here's what God says to you. And then he delivers the message, get this, in the first person. He delivers the message in the first person. It, it sort of grabs your attention. Everyone's there. They're going to find out about the new king. All right, here's what God has to say. The second thing I want you to know is, though, look at point one. I brought you up out of Egypt. He goes back into their history of the last several hundred years. I did this for you. Point two, I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that squeezed you, that pressed you, that oppressed you. Point three, but you have now rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and distresses. Oh boy, I want to tell you there was a hush. There was a hush. You talk about throwing water on a nice occasion. You talk about ruining something that could have been fun and, and, and a very entertaining, encouraging time. He stands up and he says, here's what God says. I did this, I did that, I did this. You've rejected me. Point four, here's how you've done it. By asking a king to be set over you. 19b, if you look. And then, are you ready? Point five was this. All right, let's get on with it. Present yourself before the Lord. What a message. Almost as short as Winston Churchill's. Not nine words, a little bit longer. But he stands up and he says this. I've done, here's what God says. Everyone's listening. God's speaking. Here's what God says. I've done this for you. I've done that for you. I've done this for you. You've rejected me because you've asked for a king. Okay, let's get on with it. Let's find out who it's going to be. That was it. That's all he left him with was that. Nothing inspiring, nothing great, just that message. <sighs> now, how did they get on with it? Let's read ahead here and, and look at the next thing. It's determining who the new king would be, verses 20 through 21. Would you look with me and let's find out how they did that. Let's get on with it. So he says, let's go on, present yourselves before the Lord by tribes and clans. Verse 19, now look at verse 20. When Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel's near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin's clan by clan, and Mattri's clan was chosen. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was chosen. Now, stop right there. You know how they did this? They did this by casting lots. 
To determine the will of God in the history of Israel, you cast lots. Now let me explain what that is. They were something akin to dice. The word actually means pebbles. And it was some kind of pebble with a special marking on them that was carried in the breastplate of the high priest. This would have been Samuel. And as he carried it there, they had a, a some kind of container in which they put him in, and they shook him. They shook him like this. And they shook him, and they would throw them into the lap of somebody. There would be a special person sitting there with a catch on their lap, and the lots would fall into their lap. Now, the, to listen to this, everybody. The only thing the casting of lots could determine was yes or no concerning the will of God. So here's what happened. The assembly room was packed. And so they called up, may Reuben's tribe come up. So the representative from Reuben comes up. And the guy stands there and they shake the dice and they roll it out. This is really what happened now. And it says, no. So everybody that was thinking, maybe it's me. It's sort of like the Cinderella story. Does the shoe fit? Everyone's wondering, I wonder who the king's going to be. But listen, no. So all of Reuben's sort of going, oh, it's not going to be one of us. So all of the families of Reuben know it's not them. Judah, next. Here comes Judah. Oh, they're getting ready. They've caught... No, Judah goes sit down. Manasseh, here comes Manasseh. No, finally, I don't know where Benjamin was in line. Maybe last because they were the smallest tribe. Finally, Benjamin comes forth. Benjamin had almost been completely wiped out by a civil war in Joshua. Do you remember that? Almost been wiped out completely. So it was a smaller tribe. Finally, Benjamin, roll the dice, throw him out the lots. Yes, it's Benjamin. Ah, it's Benjamin. The talk went through the room. The king's going to come from Benjamin. Can you believe this? Wow. Now, all of the men leading the clans, that's the head of all the families, all of the heads of the families come forth. Johnson's, no. Smith's, no. You know, uh, Schumacher, no. All right? I'm not sure of all the names, but they bring all the names. Family after family. This may have taken a while, although Benjamin was smaller, so it wouldn't have taken as large as all the families and some of the other tribes. It could have taken all day or longer. Finally, Matry, that's the family of Saul. Yes, it's from Matry's family. All the brilliant, it's Madry's Madri, Madri, family and Benjamin. Whoa. And then, let's find the man in that family. Billy Bob, no. Okay. Ernest, no. Barney, no. Saul, yes. It's Saul. It's Saul and Matry's family of the tribe of Benjamin. That's the king. Everyone else got a no, he got the yes. Great. By the way, where's Saul? Saul's gone. Look at the verse. Look at verse 21 again. It says, hey, finally, Saul was chosen, but when they looked for him, he was not to be found. The last part of verse 21. So notice the third point in this outline. Finding the new king. 21b through 22. They've got to find him. Now, we, if, if you haven't been here, you should have known that secretly the only people in Israel that knew that Saul was going to be the king was Samuel and Saul. Those are the only two. Samuel's, uh, Saul's uncle didn't know. Saul's family didn't know. Saul's servant didn't know. Nobody knew. There had been some people who see Saul get honored, but they did not know that Saul was going to be king. So the word is, God, it's Saul, it's Saul. Where's Saul? Well, there was when they would come to Mizpah, when you would gather together, they would gather a huge amount of equipment in one space. You know why they would do that? In case the Philistines would attack. And the word there is really for the military equipment, I believe is what the word is. And so in that all of this big junk of military equipment that they had placed in case they needed to go to battle quickly, they could run and get it. They're hiding in, under the baggage is Saul. And they, come on, Saul, come out. Come on out, Saul. Come on out. And Saul calls, and when he comes out, he's a head taller than everybody else. And they bring this great big guy, walking him up, and everyone's looking at him, and as he's walking up, notice then also presenting the new king, verses 23 and 24. Look what it says. They ran, 
and brought him, and he stood among the people. He was a head taller than any of the others. There he is. Impressive to look at. A head taller. You didn't need to put him on a pedestal to speak. There he was. Everyone could see him. They bring him up before the people, and Samuel, the prophet, stands up and makes this announcement as Saul comes walking up. Verse 24. Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Impressive. Here he comes. Look, this is the man God has chosen. And by the way, this was many things happen here. There's a lot of protection for Saul. That's the reason they cast lots, so there wouldn't get away from jealousy to make it abundantly clear this was the Lord's choosing. This is the man God has chosen, and they bring him out, and, and, and there he is before the people. And oh, how exciting it was, and he is impressive to look on, and the people shout, Long live the king! Now, a couple comments I'd like to make at this point. What a scene this was. And I just want you to catch the ways of God. Everybody, think with me a second about this. Saul was found first by Samuel when he was out doing what? In chapters 9 and 10. Out looking for lost donkeys. And now, when they bring their king, the king comes from hiding in the luggage. By the way, did you ever stop and think, when did Saul go hide in the luggage? I've got a little theory on that. I think Saul went and hid in the luggage at the end of Samuel's address. Think about this. There's everyone. Saul knows, uh-oh, it's going to be me. And he gets up and he goes, God did this, God did this, and you've rejected God by asking for a king. And Saul goes, uh-oh, it's going to be me. And I just heard that message. <laughs> I'm scared. And he leaves and hides in the luggage. That's my theory. And if you don't believe it, you're really in sin. All right? You should think about it. <laughs> now, there he is. They bring him out. Oh, they present the new king. Look at here he is. Now, notice the next thing that happens in verse 25. Samuel lays down the rules of kingdom of the kingship. Here's the first time they've always had a theocracy. Now they've got a monarchy. Here's the rules. And you want to know what the rules were, by the way? I want you to get this. The, it's fascinating to consider what these rules were. The rules were from Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. And I want you to follow along and to see some of the things that Samuel said as he presented this. There were obligations that the people had and that the king had. Notice this. This is Moses who never got to enter the land. Look what he wrote in the book of Deuteronomy. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you one who is not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. See, this is is quite different. This monarchy was going to be quite different than any of the others that they had known of in the other countries around in Israel. Look at this. When... Up here he says, when he takes the throne of his kingdom, get this everybody, look at, look at what was commanded of the king. When he takes the throne of the kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law. Do you know what you had to do to become a king of Israel? When you became a king of Israel, after your inauguration, you had to sit down and copy Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy word for word on a scroll. You had to copy that down. And then guess why you had to copy that down? Because every day of your life, you were supposed to read from it. You were supposed to read from it. In fact, look what it says. He takes the throne. He has to write for himself a scroll, a copy of this law taken from that of the priests who are the Levites. 
It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life. Watch, watch, watch what happens when you read the Bible on a regular basis, by the way. Look, so that he may learn to revere the Lord as God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not to consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or to the left, then he and his descendants will reign a long time over the kingdom in Israel. That's what Samuel said here in verse 25. He laid down these regulations and he gave an expository a sermon that he had already written out and they placed it in some special box there in the temple at Mizpah for everyone to remember this is what the king is supposed to do. The last thing then, so by the way, are you with me as to what happened? The inauguration gets set. Samuel preaches an inauguration message which probably upset a lot of people. Then they cast the lots. And I meant to show you, let me show you quickly what Proverbs says just to show you the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. And notice this, casting the lot settles the disputes. I want to just say one more thing about casting lots before we go on. You know, when they, just, when they divided the land up in Israel, they said, where's Manasseh supposed to live? Where's Reuben supposed to live? Where's Judah supposed to live? Where's Benjamin supposed to live? You know how they did it? By casting lots. Who should live in this area, Lord? Benjamin? Yes, okay. Who should live in this area, Lord? Reuben? No. Judah? No. Oh, Manasseh's supposed to live here. Oh, and a half over here. That They did it by casting lots. You know when they found out the troublemaker Achan had stolen from Jericho? Guess how they found out who the troublemaker was? By casting lots. Well, on the Day of Atonement, when they had the scapegoat and the goat that would get sacrificed, guess how they determined which goat would get which? By casting of lots. And guess what else? When is the last time there was the casting of lots in Scripture? When do you think it was? Can you think a second? Yes, that, that's almost the last time. The Romans did this. By the way, in the book of Jonah, pagans on the boat say, who is this troublemaker that's bringing this great storm on us? They cast lots and it turned out it was Jonah. Even pagans use this. But get this. Yes, they cast lots for Jesus' garments and that's what they did. They get it? But that's not the last time. The apostles did it in determining who would be the replacement apostle for Judas. Remember, it was Matthias in Acts one twenty six. Anyway, I don't know what that's going to do for your life, but I thought I would share that with you. All right. Now, we say all of that and then one last point I want you to see is the beginning of trouble in Israel, 26 and 27. Look what happens. And this is a messianic little prophecy, I think. He says, Saul went home to Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some troublemakers said, how can this fellow save us? And they despised him and brought him no gifts. Now, two things happen. There's a group of people that really like Saul, and they're all for it, and they're, and they're, and they're men that God's hearts had t- God, God had touched their hearts, and they're all fired up, and they go back to give you with Saul. But then there's a group of men that are doubters, and they go, this guy that was hiding in the luggage, he is going to save us? That big, tall goofus? He's not going to save us. And Saul doesn't say anything. But I want you to notice, you've got to remember that for next week. That's going to lead us into what some future things that are going to happen. Now, Everybody, you know what I'm about to put on here, if you've been here any time at all, right? Everything, does everything include 1 Samuel 10, 17 through 27? Was written in the past, was written to teach us, so that through the endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Last week, just remember, before I make my point for this week, what was last week's about? Thank you, thank you for somebody remembering. It was about encouragement. And that is, God sends Saul on all of these missions. You're going to meet two men, and they're going to say this. You're going to meet three men, and they're going to have bread and wine and, and uh, goats, and they're going to offer you the bread, and you're going to meet a whole group of prophets. And all of those uncanny amount of circumstances was there to encourage Saul that he could, in fact, be the king, right? You remember that? 
God is committed to our encouragement. Do you remember that? That's what this part's talking about. But look down here. All Scripture, does all include 1 Samuel 10, 17-27? Yes. All Scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching. What's this word? Rebuking. Okay, just remember, last week was encouraging. This week I want to make a point about rebuking. Okay, but hang on. Correcting and training in righteousness so that you can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The hermeneutic, I love this. This is the New Testament way of teaching is how you're supposed to take the Old Testament. Now, I want you to see this. The first thing that I want you to grasp, and this is the major point for this, for today if you came to church in this application, is the following. To speak God's Word means that there's a time to be faithful rather than cordial. What do I mean by that? Let me just say it one more time. Everybody was excited. It was the inauguration of the first king ever in the history of Israel. Oh, it was going to be an exciting time. And Samuel gets up, and boy, you talk about throwing water on a situation and, and making, making a fire die out quickly. He stands up and he goes, God says this, I've done this, I've done that, I've done this, and you've rejected me, but I asked for this king. Okay, let's get on with it. You talk about ruining a nice occasion. Now, now listen carefully to what I'm about to say. To preach with a vindictive, caustic attitude is wrong. It's fine and appropriate to be careful about etiquette and decorum. And there's a time and a place for it. But everybody listen. Truth must come before propriety. Even though it's a grand occasion, now listen carefully. If Israel has rejected God who saves them, and has not seen it or repented of it, then listen, for Samuel to get up, what if Samuel would have got up and said this? Boy, it's great to see everybody here. Isn't this an exciting time? We're about to get the first king. Well, welcome, welcome, and blessings on you. In fact, we are so excited about this new king that just before we find out who he is, let's all stand up and sing, let's get the piano going and sing a rousing round of The King is Coming. Okay? We go, the king is coming, the lots are about to be cast, you know, instead of some of the ways we sing it, and we're about to find out who he is. Oh, the king is coming. You know, you could have done that. But that isn't what he does. He stands up and he preaches the message. So then, listen, to speak God's word means you can't say, oh, it's so good to see you on this wonderful occasion. Here's the key, everybody listen. Israel's God, that is also the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel's God loves you too much to be nice when you need to be rebuked. Do you hear that? Israel's God loves you too much to be nice when you need to be rebuked. And believe me, American Christianity, American churches need a rebuke, yet everyone wants to feel good when they leave the services. I hear it again and again. Well, I want to go to a church that inspires me. I want to go to a church that motivates me. I want to go to a church that sends me out. Well, I'll tell you, I think... That if you've listened carefully, I've actually said many times, you ought to leave the services today dancing. Because you stand 100% righteous before God based upon the merits of Christ. Oh, can, and we've considered themes about God's love. And as we've exegeted different texts about God being committed to your encouragement, you ought to leave encouraged at times. But that's not the whole story. There's times when you must be rebuked. There's times when you must have somebody say, you're wrong. And can I tell you, friends, that what I noticed often is while you're out there and while I'm up here, it's just generic enough for all of you to go, get them, Pastor, get them. Yeah, Pastor, thank you. Get them. But when it comes down to me sitting across the table from you and saying, you're wrong, you must change because God's Word says so. I'm not anybody to tell you other than the spokesman for God. All of a sudden, don't like that. That's offensive. 
See, we don't like it. Now, friends, I'll tell you, I started doing a little study on this idea where Samuel stands up and says, I speak for God. Here's what God says. I brought you out of Egypt. I did. You know what? It's all through the Bible. Every time God gives a rebuke, you know what he says? He says things like this, Nathan to David. Didn't I raise you up to become king? Didn't I give you any woman that you wanted? Wouldn't I have given you anyone else that you wanted? Then haven't I blessed you in so many ways? Then how could you have done this thing by taking that man's wife? And all through Scripture, one way in which God speaks to His people is by saying this, didn't I do this? And didn't I do that? And didn't I do this? Well, if that's the case, then let me tell you something. Why did you do this? Why were you so contemptible me? For instance, to Eli. He says, didn't I bring your father's house to become the priest? Didn't I bless you in so many ways? Then why have you been so contemptible and done this wicked thing before my eyes? I'll tell you something, friends. We live in a day, it sickens me. We live in a day in which everybody accuses God. Why is God going to allow this? Why is God going to allow this? God, why are you doing this to me? I think there's a time, and I put this as politely as I know how to put it, we need to shut up. We need to shut up, and we need to let God ask the questions to us. And the questions are not, why is this happening? Why is that happening? The question is this, wait a minute, have not I done this for you? Let me tell you how it would apply to New Testament Christians. Didn't I forgive you of all your sins? Aren't you promised an eternal inheritance in heaven? Didn't I give you the power to say no? Didn't I deliver you from sin? Haven't I done this for you? If I've done all of these things for you, then how can you be so wicked by being so ungrateful and doing this, this, this terrible action? Over and over, we hear this. So this whole idea of rebuking, let me just tell you, to speak God's Word in a rebukeful way, it may not be always the popular thing. I did a little study quickly on the word rebuke, particularly as it's found in the pastoral epistles. Listen. Here's the lexicon definition. Watch what this word means. By the way, the pastor, over and over in the pastoral epistles, I'll show you some of them are, 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 are told the pastor's supposed to rebuke. Now watch what it means. To rebuke, to convict, to refute, to confute. A gen, generally with the suggestion of shame of the person convicted. It's, it's you bring the person to shame for their behavior. Now watch. By conviction, to bring to light or to expose, to find fault with. By, to, to rebuke by word, to, to reprehend severely, to chide or to admonish, to call to account, to show the person his fault, to demand an explanation. You claim to be a Christian and you're living this way. How can this be? To demand an explanation. To chasten or to punish. Now look at the way the word is used in some of the pastoral epistles. And tell me, when's the last time you saw that in the church of Jesus Christ? Here's instruction to the pastors. To those who sin, those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that others may take warning. That's exactly what it says. Rebuke publicly. Why? Because it's gonna, a rebuke to someone who's sinned publicly is going to be a help to the rest of the people. A warning. Look at this passage we always use. All Scriptures God breathed. It's profitable. The purpose of Scripture is to rebuke. Look at preach the Word. Be prepared in season, out of season. As you preach the Word, do this. Correct people. Rebuke people and encourage people with great patience and careful instruction. And please don't miss that part. It's not with a vindictive, mean attitude. It's with great patience and careful instruction. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. It's to be done sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. False teachers are to be rebuked. 
These are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Don't let anyone despise you. Rebuke with all authority. Rebuke sharply. Rebuke publicly. These things need to happen. I sat around recently with a group of pastors on the north side and was there, and I prayed a lot before I go, went to that meeting because I, I, I have a tendency to be very proud and arrogant and those kinds of things, and, and I noticed that the, the whole atmosphere of the meeting was, oh, well, you know, you would never say that to your congregation, and oh, and, and it's it just all this feel good, keep it easy, keep it light. It's sort of like easy listening music. It's easy listening preaching. And just keep it so that everyone likes it. And I'll tell you, friends, God forbid that that can't be. Let me ask you something. The, pro, the, the church growth movement that we know today where everyone is get people in the door, you tell me which one of the prophets of the Old Testament could pastor one of those churches. Tell me. Could Isaiah, who preaches the holiness of God? Could Jeremiah? How about Amos, who goes, God, here's what God says. Stop your singing. I can't stand your music. You're singing all these songs like you love me, but you don't love me. I can tell by the way you live Monday through Saturday. That's in Amos. So I don't want to hear your singing. I'd turn it down, would you? Stop it. I don't want to hear it. I heard a story recently which I just love. There's two missionaries talking to one man, or missionary and a, a dedicated lay man, 90 years old. He said, you know, one of the great burdens of my life is my 55-year-old son who lives in another part of the country. And this son is, is an atheist. He, I've raised him in the Christian home. He wants nothing to do with it. I'm heartbroken. The missionary goes, I'm very good friends with a man who pastors in that town. Would you like me to have that man go try to talk to your son? He goes, oh, would you please? The pastor took six months to get in to see this guy because he was a wealthy businessman and kept putting him off. And finally, after six months, the pastor got in. He went to the door of the house with the pastor and his wife and they met the rich businessman who was an atheist and the pastor had his Bible under his arm and there's the pastor's wife and they say, oh, won't you come in? And they come in. And he says, well, I'm here. I'm so-and-so. And they, and, and the, the, the rich agnostic businessman goes, can I be perfectly honest with you? He says, the pastor goes, well, yes, please. Be perfectly honest. That's what we want. He says, good. And then for the next 20 minutes, he droned on and on about stories like this. My dad raised us. We tithed when we didn't even have clothes for our back. And I remember going without meals. And I, then I remember that the pastor did this to some person in the church. And he went on for 20 minutes telling about how the church was full of hypocrites and therefore he had the right not to believe in God. Now this pastor is a pretty neat guy. And you know what he said? After 20 minutes, there was a pause. And the pastor said, are you done, sir? He says, well, yeah, sort of. You've got the gist of it. He says, now, sir, can I be perfectly honest with you? He said, yes. He goes, now, one more thing. You spoke for 20 minutes. I timed it. I never interrupted you once. Can I have 20 minutes? The guy said, well, I guess so. And he was a little put back by the guy's boldness. He said, yeah. He said, all right. You were in the church for 18 years, and you've left, and you've never come back, and you saw all this hypocrisy, and therefore you don't believe in God. I've been in the church for over 55, 60 years. I want you to know something. It's a lot worse than what you said. If there's a lot more hypocrites, there's a lot more sin, it's a lot worse than how you said it. You haven't even begun to uncover it. You haven't been away from it for years. Things have gotten worse. It's full of hypocrites, the church is. The guy looked like, what? He goes, secondly, sir, I've got to ask you this. Now, please listen to me. Do you realize that despite all of the hypocrites and all of that, when it all gets washed down, when everything is said and done, when you get to the bottom line, sir, if you die without faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to hell. That's bottom line. Well, friends, we know this. For the, for the first time in years, that man and his wife are now going to church. And the man also showed him Romans chapter 1. He says, let me just read you Romans 1. Look at the depravity of man. It's a lot worse than even you said. This is what we should expect. We need a Savior. That's the whole point of it. 
But you say, I like friends. I like the fact that we need to preach. I, I, I preached at my friend's church. He's a good man. But I preached at his church two years ago in May. The church gives me a couple Sundays every year to go preach in other places. And it's good for me to see what's going on. And, and, and I, when I was out at this church, I preached the message. And you know what the pastor said to me afterwards? Seminary graduate, good man, good church. You know what he said to me? He goes, Kim, I'm convicted by your preaching. I said, why? He said, you used the words damnation seven times. I counted in your sermon. And I said, yeah, well, what, what, why are you convicted? He says, because in the last year, I've never used the word once in this congregation. Never once. And he says, I'm convicted. He goes, it, 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 the, the, the fact that you said, and you know what? I just see that. Nobody wants to tell anybody that you're going to hell. Nobody wants to tell anybody. It's, 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 it, and and there, it's associated that you've either got to be this way, mean-spirited and ugly and vindictive and caustic, and blah, 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 over here, and then you, ah, you're going to hell, and I love it. You know, it's sort of the attitude. But can I tell you, that is not what we want. But at the same time, friends, do you realize that you make a total fool, a total fool out of Jesus Christ if you don't preach on hell? He was a fool to go through what he went through if there's no hell. And so the point this morning from 1 Samuel is to tell you, this by way of application, that there's a time to preach the truth. And I hope that you will pray for me to do that. I hope that you would pray that that would be true in all of our Sunday school classes and all of the, and, and, and not just here on Sundays, but you guys would have the ability to, to lovingly preach the truth to people. There's several other things I'm gonna, I'm just gonna quit, but you just can apply these the way you want. There's three other things you can take to this application. What are you impressed with? The people were impressed with Saul's height. His physical outward statistics, his size. But we learn later that God's impressed with the heart. And that, that's a whole bunch I'd like to develop, but I will just make one point. I talked to a man recently who wanted to bring some cult members that he was witnessing to to a church. He goes, you know, I'm not going to take them to your church. I said, why? He goes, I want to take them to a place that's really big. And I said, why? He goes, because if it's really big, they're going to realize, because this is a cult group that's really big, and they're going to realize there's lots of Protestants that believe in the Protestant message. And, and so I'm going to take them to a place they'll be swamped by the numbers. And, and boy, it's going to impress them. And I said, okay, that's what you want. I happen to know the church they took him to, and I'm not exaggerating, the church is liberal, does not preach the gospel. But that's going to impress the cult members. You see how confused we are? What are we impressed with? How about humility is to be preferred over his counterpart? Yeah, we can make fun of Saul hiding in the baggage, but the Bible says later on when God rebukes him, when you were little in your own eyes, God exalted you. You know what? In this self-love day in which everybody is out there, love yourself, all this, can I tell you? That when Saul started loving himself is when he got in all the trouble. You see, even though he hid him among the baggage, God still found him. And you know what? Even if you're scared and hiding among the baggage, God will still find you. It's better than the alternative. Hiding in the baggage is better than the alternative of exalting yourself. And then how to discern the will of God. Boy, could we make a killing. If I started saying, we're selling lots. We've got them right up here. You can cast them. And it's a hundred bucks for a lot. If you want both of them to go together, if you just want yes answers, it's just a hundred. If you want yes and no answers, it's two hundred. We've got them up here. You know, right up. Come on up afterwards, boy. Can we? But I, can I tell you this? You can take heart in the fact that the scriptures now, as we discern them and teach them and understand them, help us to know when to say yes and when to say no. They help us know how to discern what is right and what is wrong. And I would in, I would implore you to be people of the Word of God so that you can understand. And those are points worth developing, but we don't have time now. Uh, but you can at least take them with you. Thank you so much for your good attention. Let's pray. And that concludes today's expository word. If you have additional recorded messages of Kimber at home and would consider sharing them with our audience, please contact us through our email, 
at theexpositoryword at gmail.com. Please join us again for more classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. Take care.